Well, men, if you are like me, I seldom ask for help. Whether that be in getting somewhere, of course, or hopelessly wandering the aisles of Home Depot trying to find a screw that's that big or something like that, or, or anything carrying anything heavy or anything like that. As I get older, though, I'm starting to realize this is not always the wisest course of action. I had a situation a few weeks, weeks ago when it was 113 degrees. You guys remember that? It's all nice and cool in autumn now, but it was about 113 degrees uh, in the shade here in New Jersey. And uh, one of our window air conditioners took that moment to die. And I realized I only had one air conditioner left in storage, and that was the size of a small car. And I thought to myself, well, I'm just going to have to go down to the garage and get that air conditioner. No big deal. No problem. My, my 21-year-old self said, you got this. But my 51-year-old self said, I like my back. It's, it's just probably should not. And, and I had the, the comment, a moment of common sense. Right, Mel? And a moment of common sense where I said, ask Mikey for help. And I did, and, and my son came to my rescue, and we, we, it was amazing. Just two of us bearing that burden together was a lot easier than it was by myself, and, and I stayed relatively unscathed by that. And spiritually speaking, church, we all need help bearing burdens. We all need help within ourselves and our own spiritual walks. We've come to a place where we realize that we are in need of redemption, we're in need of salvation, and we can't bear that burden ourselves. And after that, after we become believers, we're in daily need of his sustaining grace. We're in daily need of his strength and his supply. And so Jesus is going to talk all about that this morning as Bob read for us. But first, he has some very strong words for uh, some cities in Galilee. So Probably all of you are in Matthew 11, so please head over there if you are not. Last week, we looked at Jesus returning to his preaching and teaching ministry. We had a visit from our old friend John the Baptist who was in jail. And Jesus, or rather John, doubts who Jesus is. And Jesus doesn't condemn him for that, but rather he encourages him and reminds him who he is, but he also then affirms who John was. It demonstrates through his response that Jesus' identity remains constant, even if our lives do not. And Jesus affirms John the Baptist, a man firm in conviction but gentle in heart, the one who's proclaimed boldly Jesus as the Messiah, not always the Messiah that we want or the Messiah that we expect, but the Messiah that we truly need. And so this week, Jesus continues his preaching and teaching ministry. He starts off with some very, very harsh words for some cities. And just to remind us and refresh our memory, look again at verse 20. And then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Well, that starts off with a bang, doesn't it? And Jesus, right out of the gate, has some very harsh words of denouncing these cities. And it's definitely time for a map. And as I came up here, I realized my laser pointer is still in my desk upstairs. But a couple of maps that will hopefully 
help us. So the Sea of Galilee, maybe you can see those three cities up around the top northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Those are who Jesus is talking about. He's talking about Capernaum, he's talking about Chorazin, and he's talking about Bethsaida. But then he also talks about these other cities. And so hopefully this next map will show us a little bit that these next cities are... You're never going to see that. It's my fault entirely. Up by Syria, up on the top of your screen, there are two cities on the shore of the Mediterranean. One is, one is uh, Sidon and the other is Tyre. And all the way down the bottom in that red box is Sodom, or where we think Sodom is. What do you, what do you see about these cities? Are they, are they within the kingdom of Herod's kingdom? Are they within Galilee? No, these, these are, so I wanted to show you this map, even though it might be a little weird to read, but, but they're outside the kingdom. These are those cities that Jesus said are Gentile pagan cities that are known for rampant idolatry and rejection of God. And Jesus, in one fell swoop, denounces those three cities that are right within Galilee, that are Jewish cities, and he says, it's going to be better for those pagan nations on the day of judgment than you. He pronounces woe on those Jewish cities within Galilee. This is where Jesus' ministry takes place, within Galilee. He's all around Galilee doing the works. That's what he said to them. And he says, it's going to be worse for you guys because you failed to repent. And repent is kind of a churchy word, but it means to simply turn. It means a dramatic turn. But in, when we talk about it spiritually, we talk about turning in heart and turning in mind. I'm going in this direction, and I need to change this direction, and I need to repent. I need to turn and head in another direction. Spiritually speaking, we're, we're living a life of sin, and we need to turn from being our own boss and living our life in sin and dependence on ourselves, and we need to turn towards faith in Jesus Christ and to what he calls us to. That's repentance. And Jesus says, you're in judgment because you did not repent. He lights them up with this scathing rebuke. He hits Chorazin and Bethsaida, and he pronounces woe on them. To pronounce woe on someone means that you are about to be judged. It means you might even be about to be destroyed. It means there is danger coming your way. Woe upon you. Parents, if you catch your children doing something that you explicitly told them not to do, a fun thing might be to sneak up on them and pronounce woe on them. Woe upon you, child. <laughs> and they will immediately know that they have been caught. And they are. But he compares them to two other cities, Tyre and, and Sidon. They are pagan Gentile cities, as is Sodom. Everybody knows Sodom, a horrific, rebellious city full of sin and debauchery. They don't, these three cities, Jesus says that they will be worse. They will fare worse on the day of judgment. And just because we went there in Capernaum and Chorazin, uh, there are random pictures that I have selected for your enjoyment this is Capernaum, as you can see. That needs a little fixer-upper, but that is what's left of Capernaum in the ruins of maybe Jesus walked around these very places when he was doing his ministry. I think I have another picture of the synagogue at Capernaum. So there's actually the Jewish synagogue uh, that then still stands in some ruins today. 
in a little bit of an artsy take on it. I was using the, the portrait mode on my iPhone there. So, and I think there's a picture of Corazon as well. So this is what's left at one of the, the synagogues as well at Corazon. So these are real places that Jesus pronounced woe on. And as you saw, real places with real synagogues, real Jewish cities. And Jesus says, and these, these cities that he mentions, right? Tyre and Sidon and especially Sodom, they must have, have caused them to just wince. Like proper Jewish people don't even talk about those cities. They were so wicked. And Jesus said, it's going to be better for them on judgment than for you. Why? Because you've seen all the works that I did and you didn't believe, you didn't repent. He says, if I had gone to those cities, if I had gone to Tyre, if I had gone to Sidon, if I had went to Sodom and I went there and I did these works, they would have dropped to their knees immediately and repented in sackcloth and ashes. But you guys, you're too proud and you don't even believe who I am. Don't even realize the need. And they heard the message of Jesus yet still failed to believe. Here's the point. We are responsible for our response to the gospel. We're responsible for our response to the gospel. Jesus is saying it's going to be far worse to hear the gospel and then not believe, reject it as nonsense, than if you never heard it at all. It's a strong warning to a few groups of people. First, to us sitting in this room right now. To all people who go to church, maybe you intellectually play around with the idea of gospel, maybe intellectually kind of toy with this idea that Jesus might be the Messiah, maybe that I am a sinner before God, and maybe I do need to repent, but you've never actually done that. This applies to you. This applies to us, and this is a hard word, because if you sit here week after week and you hear the gospel being preached, and then you stand before Jesus, this principle will apply. It is better for you to have never heard the gospel than for you to continue to hear the gospel and reject it. You never commit in church membership. You never fully submit or repent. You never are fully involved in the body. You never submit to discipleship. You never go all the way with it. But yet you kind of just play around with this concept in your mind. You come to church regularly. You sing the songs. You hear the gospel preached week after week. Jesus says you will be judged more severely. That's a hard word. We got to remember, too, that we've softened the gospel so much in our American churchianity that we sometimes think it's God begging people like a sales pitch to come to him. Just please believe in me. Please accept Jesus into your heart, and your life will be so much better for it. Like God is some cheesy salesman begging people to come to him. The gospel isn't an offer. It's not a suggestion. The gospel is a command. And if people do not believe that, there's judgment that awaits, especially if you continue to hear it. The gospel is a command, if not obeyed, it's going to lead to eternal banishment from Jesus Christ in hell. Hebrews does not mess around with this. There are plenty of places we could go, but Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this pretty clearly in verse 26. It says this, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is no longer remaining a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a, fire, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified 
and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We've got to preach all God's word, church. We have to. This is a strong word for those people just like those people who saw Jesus heal people, raise people from the dead, give sight to the blind, unplug deaf ears, and then they still rejected him. The same goes for us. Why was Israel itself in the Old Testament judged so severely? They were defeated by enemies. They were sent into exile. They were kicked out of their own promised land. Why? Because they were God's people and they rejected their God. And he warned them and warned them and warned them that this will happen and eventually happen. You hear the truth of the gospel. You are responsible for your response. And if you actually never legitimately repent, it's going to be far worse for you in judgment than it is if you never heard it at all. God the king will not be mocked. And you're probably also putting the pieces together for kind of a second application of this, which is what does this mean for our country? What does this mean for our nation? We are not certainly a Christian nation, but I bet every person in America could know or know the name of Jesus and probably even tell you what he did, that he went to the cross for our sins, but they still rejected his nonsense and probably couldn't care less. Many will live their lives without repenting, without submitting to the, to the king, and will face more severe judgment for it. Have you ever thought that maybe some of the reason why our country has gone off the rails into crazy town clown world is because we're being judged right here and now for people rejecting God? That's the truth from Scripture. We see that all the time. America is not Israel. We have to be careful with that. But we are not immune to God's judgment, and God will not be mocked. Especially a nation so blessed and so prosperous as us. A land where people are free to worship God, read the Bible, go to any church that you want in your town, access the Bible in your own language. That gift, and many will reject. You don't think that this principle applies? That God will judge those in this country more severely for rejecting him who is so plainly in their face? You know, in our, our evangelism, too, we've got to remember that. Sure, we want people, we want to share the good news of the gospel. But we've got to remember they have a responsibility as well. And so many of us, too, when we try to share the gospel, we get rejected. We got mocked. I'm going back and forth with a very angry atheist on my blog right now who's, who just can't believe that the, the, the scripture would be true and real and all of that good stuff. And so we're, we're trying to have a conversation about that. But there's a sense of mocking. There's a sense of condemnation in it. The reality that God will not be mocked. And we're so blessed as a nation. There's a real sense of balance here that we have to put a responsibility on the hearer as well. We don't have to just push and push and push and push, although we care with compassion and we want people to come to faith. We've got to realize they have, they've heard the gospel. They have a responsibility. You will be responsible for your response to the gospel. There is a sense of responsibility on the hearer. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God one day. The only salvation from his wrath is that that wrath will be satisfied on the cross of Jesus Christ. And we are responsible 
for our response to the gospel. But we have to balance that too with the sovereignty of God. And that's where Jesus goes next. Look at verse 25. It says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is such your gracious will. So get this, Jesus, despite judging them for hearing the gospel and not repenting, in the next breath, God thanks the Father. Jesus thanks God the Father for hiding these things from little children. What on earth is he saying? He's giving praise to God the Father for his sovereign plan of salvation, his gracious will that those who are arrogant and full of themselves and prideful are not the ones who are going to repent. The truth of the gospel remains hidden to them because they can't see past their own pride and their own selves. It's hidden to them. Like the Jewish cities of Chorazin, of Bethsaida, of Capernaum. Yet who knows they need salvation? The humble. The people that know that they are far from God. The people that know that they are sinners. People like little children, simple, dependent, humble, cute little sinners that our children can be, right? This is good news, people. This is great news that, that especially with, with who it's coming from, because Jesus then moves next into making a jaw-dropping statement of who he is. That, that reinforced, and what, what we're going to see in a second in verse 27, is that he doesn't want the people that have it all together. He wants the people that know that they need him in humility. Look at verse 27, and Jesus, again, shockingly reveals his identity. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Tell me again how Jesus never claims to be God in the Bible. Tell me again how the Bible never says that Jesus is the only way to God. Tell me again how my salvation is based on my faith and my works and my merit. And I will point you to this verse. This, the, the Christology in this verse, the doctrine of who Christ is, is staggering in this verse. Jesus says that all things have been given to him by the Father. All things. It's, it's a really complex word in the Greek, all, but I'll try to explain it the best way I can. It just means all. Just mean everything, every possible thing that possibly could be included is included in that. And Jesus says, he's, been given, he's given that to me. One would think, logic would follow, that you would have to be God in order to take all things from God the Father. Would you not? That's what Jesus is saying. It's a deity claim. And Jesus talks then about the knowledge that they have each of each other. In Hebrew and Greek thought, the sense of knowledge is just not an intellectual knowledge. It's just not, I'm, in a, I'm acquainted with this person. But I am so intimately knowing this other person, this other person of the Trinity. It's being the same essence. It's an exclusive, intimate bond that only the three persons of the Godhead have because the Holy Spirit, of course, not mentioned in this passage, is still mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, so we serve a three-in-one God. The same bond exists. It's a deep, intimate knowledge. We can compare it on a human level maybe to the bond of husband and wife, that intimate, that vulnerable. Mel knows a thought in my head before I think it. 
She knows what every move that I make. She knows how I walk, that I'm either irritated or anxious or happy or whatever it is, right? It's kind of that idea, that picture. That's what marriage is supposed to be like. This is a fraction, church, of how God the Father and God the Son are of the same essence, God the Holy Spirit as well. Jesus then comes right out and tells us that no one can come to the Father unless I reveal him to them. You guys catching that? Are you catching the weight of the exclusivity of this? That Jesus says, no one can come to see God the Father unless I reveal God the Father to them. Jesus is the revealer of God. Jesus is the exclusive way of salvation. And our triune God, he says, is sovereign over it all. And so I'll put it this way. God is sovereign over salvation. God is sovereign over salvation, right? And hopefully you're putting that together with the first part, right? Wait a minute, I thought we were responsible. We are. Wait a minute, I thought you just said God was sovereign. I did. Pink famously wrote, two things are beyond dispute. God is sovereign and man is responsible. The age-old debate of how are we saved. One says that, oh, no, 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 it's all God. And the other side, no, it's all our choice. If you're going to pick exclusively one side or the other to answer that question, you're wrong. You're out of step with the Bible that we just read. Right? We see it right here in our passage. We're responsible for our response to the gospel, but God is sovereign over everything. He's responsible for salvation. Truth, and it's one of those doctrines that Scripture holds in tension. There's two wings of the airplane. There's two rails of the train tracks. You can't have one without the other. You need both. We are responsible for our response to the gospel, but God is sovereign over salvation. God is not surprised, and sometimes maybe that's a good way to say it. God was never shocked when I finally repented. There was no, no conference room meeting that God called when actually I repented, saying, did you see Mike Rule finally repented? I never saw that coming. Holy moly. Of course he saw that coming because he was sovereignly working 30 years of events in my life to bring him to himself. That's what our God does, but I was responsible for my response to him. It's, it's being part of God being God, right? It's kind of his job description. We call him God. There's nothing he does not know. There's nothing he does not control. There's nothing he's not sovereign over, meaning that he has unlimited and unrestricted control over every atom molecule, person in his kingdom. Abraham Kuyper said it this way, there is not one square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Every single part of his creation. Jesus plainly says that this is the gracious will of God the Father. It's his gracious plan of salvation that God the Father is revealed through God the Son. That's why it's such a big deal that Jesus is being rejected. Because they're not rejecting a way to God. They're rejecting the way to God. And they're rejecting God himself. And they're too proud to admit it. Craig Keener wrote that true wisdom is hidden from those professing to be wise. The more wise you think you are, the more hidden you actually are from truism, especially spiritually thinking. The more you think that you don't need God, 
you actually are realizing that you are just welling up these, these calluses in front of your eyes, blocking you from your true need for God. And it's the sovereign plan of salvation that turns the world upside down. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It doesn't make any sense, and people still mock it to this day, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Do you catch that? All the Bible says the same thing. Because of God, you're in Christ Jesus. He's sovereign over salvation, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Part of the good news of the gospel church is God doesn't call the proud. God doesn't call the powerful, the rich, the skinny, the fashionable, the social media influencers, the ones who seem to have everything perfectly going on for them. He calls the gentle. He calls the lowly. He calls the humble. He calls those who are like Jesus. And that's exactly how Jesus describes himself. Look at verse 28. And Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Famous words, right? We're all familiar with this passage. God is absolutely sovereign in salvation, yet he, he graciously extends the offer of salvation through Jesus, who then we see this verbally represented here as saying, come to me. This is Jesus laying the, author, the, the offer of salvation and I, and I love how scripture, just when you might be tempted to think that God is some cold-hearted ogre up there choosing who he wants and who he wants to send to hell and whatever else you want to say, we bring it back to this, and we see the very heart of Jesus Christ. There's no other place where Jesus talks about his heart in this passage. The very heart of Jesus in being gentle and being humble. And he says, come to me. All who labor and are weighed down. Those who feel the exhaustion of the soul from life, from sickness, from evil. Those who are weighed down. Those who know that they are far from God. This is the universal human problem. Whether humans know it or not. It's something that we all carry around. We all carry around this burden. We carry around this, this sin. We all feel the weight of our sin and our separation. I think immediately, of course, of Pilgrim's Progress, and we think of Christian as when he finally got to the cross after carrying that burden and realizing that it is only through faith in Jesus Christ, and the moment the burden just fell off of his shoulders. That, that's what we feel. Sometimes we feel it more, sometimes we don't. Most of the time, our American life just keeps us so distracted that we try not to think about it, but it's there. And sometimes in those moments when we're, we're faced to reconcile our worldview with a tragic world event or faced to reconcile our worldview with somebody dying or being sick or whatever, then we feel it, don't we? But the truth is, church, the truth is it's always there. We just might not feel it all the time. The burden's always there. It's the universal human problem, whether we know it or not. 
We all feel the weight of sin and our separation from God. One author put it this way, Jesus Christ has given us the immortal answer to the practical human predicament. It's both the statement of the problem and the solution to it. We are all heavily burdened. We are all weighed down by sin and sickness and death and evil. And Jesus says, come to me. That's, that's the solution. And what does he promise us? He promises us rest. And that word rest is literally a verb. It says, Jesus will rest us. Or perhaps more practically, he will cause us to have rest. And then Jesus continues, after we come to him, he commands us. This, is to, this jumped out at me. He commands us not only that we should come to him, not only that we should take his yoke upon us, but then from there, he says, learn from me. That's a command too. He says, take my yoke. And he says, learn from me. Well, what, what is a yoke? Well, I got a couple pictures of yokes. There's a human yoke, which I tried to not use that picture. I really did. But when you're looking for a human yoke, I had like two choices and both of them were terrible. I don't know who that person is, but she's very happy to be carrying a yoke. And you see that that's the idea, that it, it goes on your shoulders and she's probably carrying two heavy burdens, whether it be buckets of water, whether it be buckets of grain or whatever else that is. But the idea is you spread it out, you spread out the load and you're carrying that. And of course, other people think of a, a animal yoke, which is next. This is from my private yoke collection. I don't have a yoke collection at all. But you see that animals would go on either side and then they would be hooked up to a cart, they'd be hooked to a plow. But in both of those things, we kind of see both aspects of what Jesus is trying to explain to us. A human yoke designed to carry heavy burdens and an animal yoke is used to basically make the animal go where you want them to go. Animals, plural. But a yoke in the Bible frequently symbolizes oppression from an enemy. Israel was under a yoke of slavery in Egypt. Israel yoked itself to false gods in worship and they were exiled from their land and then the Bible says they were under the yoke of Babylon in exile. Lamentations tells us transgressions are bound into a yoke. Paul frequently speaks of our bondage as a slave to sin before Christ. And so the truth is, again, that we are all under some sort of yoke. We're all under that burden. Again, whether we know it or not, it's there. All of us are under some sort of... So it's not like sometimes we can look at this passage and Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you this yoke and put it on. But it's not like that because we already have a yoke. So Jesus is basically saying, come to me. I will take your yoke of sin. I will take your yoke of being weighed down and being separated from me. And you take my yoke and put that on your shoulders. And what does he say about his yoke? He says, the burden is easy. And it's light. And he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. He gives us then, remember, two commands. First, come to him, take the yoke. But second, learn from me. He commands us. It's not just taking the yoke and saying, thanks, Jesus. It's taking the yoke and learning from him. A yoke, again, used to train animals, to control them, to make them go where you need them to go. We don't just take this Jesus up on his offer to get rest, and we get a nice hug from Jesus, 
and we're rested for a few minutes, and then we sign off and say, Jesus, thanks for that encouragement. Let me go on and live my life the way I want to live my life. Jesus says, no, you come to me. I'm going to take your yoke of sin, and I'm going to give you my yoke. We then have a calling. And here's the point. We come to Jesus to be free of sin and then follow him. We're free of sin, and then we follow him. And this verse has a tremendous view into the heart of Jesus, gentle and lowly in heart, inviting all to come to him. But sometimes we can stop in that first part again. Jesus calling, oh, that sounds nice. I want to do that. I want to go to Jesus. I want him to give me a big hug. I want him to just take away all of my problems, and I want to not think about all of these things. And it is nice, but we can't stop there. That's just the first part. After he welcomes us and after he comforts, comforts us and takes our burden, he says, take my yoke and then learn from me. And Jesus just doesn't call us out to come to him. He commands us to take the yoke and follow him. From the yoke, again, takes the, the heavy yoke of sin and separation from God and gives us his yoke of salvation. From one yoke hangs crushing weights, the weight of sin, the weight of judgment, the weight of slavery to sin, the knowledge of evil, all that stuff in our world, they hang on us. But from Jesus's yoke hangs life and lightness in that. The yoke is easy and the burden is light. This is salvation and freedom from sin. How, think about this, how is his burden lighter? Because he's bearing it for us. He did it on the cross. We still have a yoke. We still have to follow him. But the burden is not felt. Why? Because he's bearing the burden. He's the one bearing the burden of sin. He took all of sin on the cross. He took all the penalty for sin. And he takes our sin and our shame. And Isaiah tells us he takes our sorrows. And he takes all of that. And he understands that. And so we have this yoke. But the weight of that yoke is being borne by our Savior. That's how he can say... It is light, and the burden is easy. It's salvation and freedom from sin. And then the second part is, after we've taken his yoke, we are to learn from him. We still have a, a yoke, but it's not a yoke of helplessness or hopelessness where we're crushed under the weight of sin. It's a yoke of freedom where we then grow and change more into the image of Jesus Christ as he leads us where we need to go. One commentator writes, it is not lighter because he demands less, but because he bears more of the load with the one who is burdened. The yoke of sin is soul crushing, where there's only striving, where there's only exhaustion, but the yoke of salvation is life-giving and light and rest is found in there. The yoke then from Jesus outfits us to grow and flourish into all he's planned for us because Jesus' yoke is full of joy. It's full of fulfillment as we follow our Savior. This is because why? Because Jesus is gentle and humble. This is how he describes his heart. Now put all the pieces together, right? He spoke to those cities in the beginning and he said, I am going to judge you more severely because you're too proud to even acknowledge that I am the Messiah. And I'm doing these things right in here, in your face in Galilee all the time. He says, you rejected me in your pride. Therefore, you're going to be more responsible because of your pride in rejecting me. And now he says, but yet I am the Savior who's gentle and lowly in heart. This is who, this is who we're supposed to be, church. 
This is who we're, we're not supposed to be the prideful ones who reject Jesus. We're supposed to be like Jesus himself, who is gentle and humble and lowly in heart. We have to realize that we're yoked up with sin, that we're being solely crushed and sapped in strength, that Jesus stands calling for us to come to him. I will bear the burden. But you have to realize that you have a burden in the first place and not be so proud like those cities. So maybe I can summarize it this way. God gives salvation to those who realize they need him. God gives salvation to those who realize they need him. We have to realize our problem before we can see the solution. That's why American Christianity and evangelicalism needs to be refined in its sense that we just don't come to Jesus with our already awesome life and then Jesus could make it awesomer. That's not what the message of the gospel is. The message of the gospel is that we need salvation. And no one can do it but Jesus Christ. So in good news is, he says, come to me. He invites us to come. We have to realize that we're responsible for our response to the gospel. We have to realize that God is sovereign over all things, including salvation. And we have to realize that we're saved by Jesus to become like Jesus. He calls us to come to him to both be free of sin and then to follow him. That our gentle and humble Savior is kneeling down with us with face in the dirt saying, give me that. I'm going to take that burden. You have a tremendous load you're carrying. Give it to me. Learn to be like me. And of course, all of this falls again on the evangelistic side. And so if you're here today, again, if you never submitted to Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, right, both sides of that yoke, why not today? Why not, why not make that final decision to come to Jesus? Be serious about your, your faith today. Understand your need for him because as, you, as we said, you're responsible for your response to the gospel. That we go to Jesus, we let him remove the crushing weight of sin and replace it with his yoke and then learn to follow him with your whole life. That's the mission of the church, right? Making and maturing disciples. But for those who have already done that, maybe you've been a Christian here this morning for many, many years, but realize this, we all still need him every single day. It is fatal to our spiritual health to drift into independence. There needs to be a certain level of dependence on Jesus and church. We can't lose the truth that we need Jesus every single hour and he is faithful. And church, I would also encourage you to remember the second command of Jesus that we saw after you come after, after you, you come to him, we're to learn from him. We have a mission to grow more mature into the image of Jesus Christ. That we take that yoke of discipleship that Jesus said is actually easy and the burden is light. Why? Because Jesus is the one who carries the weight of sin. It's a yoke with no weight on it, but it's a yoke nonetheless. Jesus gives us the strength and the spirit to follow him as he commands us to. Don't forget that we are yoked to Christ and that is for our good. And don't forget that salvation is linked permanently to Jesus and don't forget that the yoke that we bear is the commitment to follow Jesus Christ wherever he leads us. And don't forget that we need him every day. So we take up that yoke joyfully and we say, where are you leading me today, Lord? And sometimes when we realize that we are still burdened and heavy laden, that we need to realize that he's the one bearing the weight, church. Sometimes we can put these own burdens back on the yoke, just clip them onto the end of the rope, and Jesus is saying, what are you doing? 
I did that on the cross. It's gone. It's not there. You don't have to bear that. I'm bearing that. We remember that his yoke is easy and his burden is life, light. God gives salvation to those who realize they need him. Church, much to pray about, much to think about, much to celebrate in what Jesus has done for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love. We thank you for this word. This is a tough word, Lord, and that we think about our, our reception of the gospel. Lord, we, we see so many of us all around us that are rejecting you, that continue to mock you, that continue to think of Christianity and the Bible as foolishness. But we're reminded from your word that, that that's how you designed it, that you use the foolishness of you to shame the wise. And we pray that you would be breaking down the pride and opening the eyes of our friends, of our neighbors, of our family members, indeed people in this very room, to finally submit to Jesus and understand what is at stake. But Father, for us as the church, thus that have been, or the ones that have been called into your presence, the one that has accepted your invitation to come to you, let us remember that we still bear a yoke, a yoke with no weights, but a yoke that then is our learning. Help us to grow more into the image of Christ. Help us to put sin to death. Help us to prioritize discipleship. Help us to prioritize the church and all the things that you've given us in membership and discipleship and growth and accountability and encouragement. Help us, Lord, to do all of these things in gratitude for who you are. We pray it in the name of Jesus, the one who is gentle and lowly in heart. Amen.